Are you a hybrid athlete who wants to learn more about how to combine your strength and endurance training? Well, I've written a new book, The Science of Hybrid Training. In this book, I provide insight into the misconceptions surrounding strength and endurance training by distilling the past 50 years of research and drawing on the conversations I had with great scientists, coaches, and athletes on the Progress Theory podcast. This book is essential reading for hybrid athletes and coaches who are looking to understand the key training variables and their effect on the simultaneous development of strength and endurance performance. Get your copy now, available to buy from Amazon. Now, let's get into the show. Hello and welcome to The Progress Theory, where we discuss how to implement scientific principles for optimizing human performance. I'm Dr. Phil Price, and on today's episode, we're joined by SNC and weightlifting coach, university lecturer and researcher, Sean Joff. Sean is one of the most knowledgeable coaches on weightlifting in the country. His research has really provided substance and direction for his training and his programming decisions, which has enabled him to develop this amazing approach to weightlifting, which he shares with us in this episode. If you're a fan of programming for lifting heavy things fast, this is the episode for you. As always, follow and subscribe to The Progress Theory on Instagram, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please check out all of our other content. Here is Sean Joff. Hi, Sean. Welcome to The Progress Theory. How you doing, mate? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for coming on at such a time. I know you've just got back from probably one of the most special two weeks of your life. <laughs> uh, well, maybe not the last two weeks. I've been uh, kind of just, I wouldn't say sunning it down in um, Cornwall. It's been a bit crappy weather, but we took a bit of a honeymoon. But yeah, got married two weeks ago, two, two and a half years in the making. Obviously, we planned to do it a year, <laughs> a year before. So uh, it was a special day, but I was pleased to get it done. <laughs> yeah, mate, it was, it was wicked. It was really good. Wicked, it all went okay in the end, like... Obviously, we work together. We we pretty much share a desk. Like uh, we work next to each other, so I know how much uh, effort that you've managed to put into getting the wedding set up with all the restrictions happening. So I'm so happy that everything's worked out in the end. It was such a great day. So nice to hear. That's good, mate. Thank you. It was really good. Yeah, I wanted to discuss weightlifting on the podcast for quite some time, but I always wanted to have you on the podcast when talk about anything about weightlifting you are the most knowledgeable person on weightlifting that i know so if i only have any questions regarding the sport or using it as a training methodology i come straight for you so thank you so much for coming on before we delve into the topic a little bit more do you want to give a bit more of a background about yourself and where the passion for weightlifting for you came from yeah yeah sure i mean it's a difficult one. I never really had a particularly defining start point. It's probably something that evolved over a bit of time. But like many people who are keen to get into strength and conditioning, you know, practicing the Olympic lifts either for the UKSCA accreditation or another accreditation or purely because they had an interest in learning the lifts and applying it within their practice. And kind of part of that, I found myself going to what was a weightlifting club near, which was actually my hometown of Woking, um, which I for years didn't even know was there. Um, it was after I'd done my master's degree and thought I need to actually get you know, upskill in some of these areas. So I went along and at the time it was being run by 
who was then obviously my former coach. So that's Brian Hamill. I mean, people probably would know a lot of people in weightlifting, well, particularly in weightlifting, but also in strength and conditioning know of Brian. He ran a lot of courses, a lot of kind of workshops and things like that introducing the Olympic lifts and teaching people how to teach them. And then I ran that club for, for 40 years or so. So I kind of went there with the intention of developing a skill set in for strength and conditioning. But really from then got into training and then I started competing. I pretty never say I was ever particularly good at good at weightlifting compared to other other competitors in, in the UK. But I, I really love the sport and I really love coaching it. And I perhaps always had maybe more of a, more of a motivation to to coach the sport than to compete in it. I came to it, maybe not not hugely late, but I think I was about 21, 22, enough to be able to get get some good training in and make progress and and go and compete. But yeah, I kind of that's kind of how I found the club. And then spent a bit of time in, you know, as a strength and conditioning coach for a number of different sports and I had some ideas about how I'd apply some of these principles to to, to the athletes I was working with. But I found myself always kind of gravitating back towards the sport itself, where I've kind of Today, found myself working at, you know, St. Mary's as lecturing in strength and conditioning. But, you know, most of my applied practice now is in coaching, coaching the Olympic lifts. And, yeah, I'm sure we'll make, make, make a, get on to all of my other coaching experience. But really, that's kind of a bit of a, a snapshot as to how I kind of got into in, into the sport itself. Yeah, yeah. I remember my first ever weightlifting competition and it was at Woking. And this is before we knew each other, but we were in the same weight class. And you know, when you're like <laughs> new and keen and you think, oh, this guy's like similar level to me, everything I, I was doing, everything I was focusing on, even making decisions on like, should I go a little bit more in between my lifts? It was all, all relevance to what you were doing as an athlete as well. I think you beat me as well. <laughs> I really was a, 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 not a very good weightlifter, but I, I, I just remember you then. Because a number of people said, oh, that's, that's Sean Joffe. Like, he's quite well known within the S&C world and within the, the weightlifting world. So I knew of you then and targeted you, but you were just considerably <laughs> better than me at both lifting and, and everything regarding weightlifting. Well, I appreciate you saying, mate. It didn't feel like that, but yeah. <laughs> Definitely felt like that. You, you've got a number of other S&C experiences as well you you know while you focus on lecturing and your research and weightlifting now you have quite a rich history in snc and other sports don't you yeah so just think how far back to even to even go so i guess to put it very very quickly i did my undergrad in kind of a sports coaching sports science sports coaching degree that was at buckinghamshire university then did my master's at edinburgh in strength and conditioning and it was really there that kind of started to get a feel for the for Olympic weightlifting, but just more as a modality for strength and conditioning. While I was there, I did a, like an internship with Edinburgh Rugby, which is part of like the Scottish Rugby Union. So got a bit of exposure to some professional and international level rugby players. Um, and then came back down to kind of the southeast and yeah, then started some, some, in some other internships. Did one at London Welsh and then eventually got into another sort of intro kind of internship position at, at the English Institute of Sport and I was working with the uh, GB men's and women's hockey team uh, unfortunately that timing of that was perfect because it was about two years just before the London Olympic Games so yeah it was uh, 2010 and then that took me through through the Olympics so got to work with my first team going to Olympic Games which was great coming straight into uh, an intern level position 
and then to be working with a team that actually went on to win an Olympic bronze medal, which was the the, the women's team. Uh, shortly after that, I then did about a three-year stint with the um, Paralympic rowing team. And again, a very different set of skills in strength and conditioning, working with disability athletes. And then shortly after that, British weightlifting, they had gone through a bit of a, a strange strange time because they, they had funding to take a team to the uh, London 2012 Games, shortly lost their funding afterwards, and then funding was reinstated just for the women's program. And then they appointed, well, they were due to appoint uh, someone to sort of like lead the strength and conditioning performance science strategy. So I'd applied for that and was I took on that role. That was around the end of 2014 and then went or worked with that group of athletes up until the, the Rio 2016 game. So... It was quite broad, my background to begin with, even though my interest was still in Olympic weightlifting, it was very broad and diverse. Um, and whilst working with all of those teams, I always had like a small remit for like, like what in the EIS was called like multi-sport. So it was working with different athletes and different, um, those who weren't necessarily in centralized programs uh, and then be working out of different facilities. And I was based out of Bisham Abbey. So there were a number of athletes who had a lead strength and conditioning coach who might be based up in Manchester or Newcastle or whatever, but then would I would then provide the strength and conditioning service for that athlete on a day-to-day basis whilst touching base with other lead strength and conditioning coach. So by the, by the time I'd left the EIS, I think I must have had experience with more than 15, 20 Olympic and Paralympic sports across the board, which was such a rich it's amazing. You know, set of experience. It was great. It was really good. And it's such a... It was such a, an acceleration of my development as a as a practitioner, and yeah, I mean, I really attribute so much of what I've learned to date to to the times that I'd spent there. The EIS are great for really nurturing their, their practitioners and ensuring that they develop. And so yeah, there was a, there was a there's a lot to be said for the time that I'd spent there because it was it was really good. But I think, like I said, it always felt like I was just being called back to to weightlifting as a sport, and it's the the the, the one sport that I felt the most. I'm passionate about, yeah, and I think now I find myself in a position where I actually get to do perhaps some of the, a blend of the things that I enjoy a little bit more, a bit of teaching on the topics that I enjoy, researching in an area relating to sort of strength science, but particularly in the context of Olympic weightlifting, yeah, and, and then and then running a club and coaching uh, and coaching a you know a decent group of weightlifters. So yeah, it feels like the best of both both worlds at the moment, which is great. Mm. Do you think that rich experience in so many different sports has helped you with your programming and coaching for weightlifting if weightlifting is your constant that was all you always were drawn back to it that the fact you've got so much experience elsewhere actually made you a better weightlifting coach yeah definitely i mean there's so many i think part of it is the the sport in itself being exposed to having to try and problem solve for lots of different sports and trying to figure out how do you optimally physically prepare an athlete and although for example, working with an Olympic rower or a Paralympic rower, there might not be anywhere near the same in terms of what training looks like. There are certain principles that you can take about how do you optimally organize someone's training week. You might see certain recovery practices that are common in one sport and not so much in another. How they train like the technical components as well as the physical components. You know, are there things that are transferable between sports? But I'd say the probably the biggest thing that was actually the the benefit wasn't necessarily just the exposure to the other sports, but the exposure to the other coaches and the conversations that took place regularly around people's philosophies around training, a new piece of research that they just read and thinking about how they might try and apply it in their sport. And I think perhaps it was one of those things you probably don't realize it while you're in it, but I don't think there's probably any day that I didn't go there and got prompted about a conversation 
of a top, you know, a topic that I hadn't even thought about just while having a, a sandwich or a coffee. Mm. And someone goes, oh, what do you think about this? And the amount of informal conversations that took place on a day-to-day basis, like it was just so, so ingrained in what you do. And just, I think so much, although the, the, the CPD that was put in place while we were there was, was outstanding, but I would probably say that a lot of the learning actually took place in the conversations that happened after those CPD events when you're just chewing the fat and, and talking to someone around how they intend to take some of these principles and put it into practice. And that's, that's where I think a lot of the, the acceleration of, of my development really uh, came about was just mm. not being able to get away from conversations every single day about different ideas about how you might try and put them into practice and, and ultimately improve someone's performance. Mm. Yeah, it's wicked. It really shows the importance of networking. It always seems to be those small informal conversations that have the most profound effect and you don't realize just how much of a profound effect it will have until later on until something happens when you start reflecting oh i remember talking about that with such and such and it really just opens your eyes to new ideas doesn't it yeah absolutely and as much as like love the environment that we you know that we work in i don't necessarily think it's something that happens as organically in maybe in our environment working in more, more predominantly academia, it might happen in the context of of maybe maybe research ideas and things like that. But mm. yeah, it's, it was very different. It's just it's difficult to put into words, but it was just such a it was such a more of an organic process you know, to be easily easily be able to to talk to people around different training ideas, even if it was completely just a, a, a thought that pops into your head, rather than really having to having to just come from a really rigorous academic piece of work it could just be someone's brain fart they just thought oh maybe let's try this what do you think about this could this work because you're trying to i think the difference is is when you're in in, in practice all the time it's just you're trying to problem solve and figure out ways of, of well, solve a problem which I, I guess there are similarities you can draw between that and working in more of a, like a research side of things but experience both and then find out for yourself that's what i'd recommend just get into as many environments where you can have those conversations whether it be more academic more coach you probably do a bit more in the area that you want to go into so yeah, yeah. but you never know when those ideas are going to come or where those conversations are going to come so all right let's let's talk a bit more weightlifting uh, for those that are relatively new to the sport would you be able to describe what is the sport of weightlifting and what are the determinants of performance because i know you've done quite a bit of research into looking into what makes the the best weightlifters in the world the best, aside from lifting more weight, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I'm sure many people are familiar with with weightlifting. Sometimes confused with powerlifting, but Olympic weightlifting is is two lifts: the snatch and the clean and jerk. It must be about what 50 years ago or so. There was another lift, which is the clean and press, but that was removed. So for the last 50 years or so, it's been those two lifts: the snatch and the clean and jerk. Snatch being a lift from the floor to overhead in one movement. And then the clean and jerk is lifting the floor to the shoulders and then overhead. So it's uh, one is done in a single movement, the other is done in a, a two-part movement. So, yeah, essentially what ultimately determines the, the outcome of the, the competition is the combined total of the snatch and the clean and jerk. And obviously you'll have your male and female groups and then you'll also have weight categories for each the male and then the female group. So they range from around kind of mid-40 to... 90 kilos in the in the females and then in the males it's around lower 55 or so up to about 100 and 
110 and then like your 109 and then your open categories. So yes, so it's a weight category based sport. Ultimately, it's a case of trying to lift as, as much weight as possible. In terms of the, the determinants, it's you can look at it through a fairly simplistic biomechanical or even mechanical perspective. It's just simply if you're trying to lift a, a weight overhead and you know how far you've got to lift that weight, to some, to some extent you can kind of fairly accurately determine how much force or impulse you're going to need to be able to move that move that weight. But then obviously it becomes a little bit more complicated because then you've got to factor in things like like technique as well. So yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting question, first of all. And although it's probably an easier question to answer for weightlifting than it is for many other sports, it's still not perhaps absolutely clear cut. And we're also then faced with the, the challenge of once we've been able to find the answers to that question, it's like, how do you find the, the training strategies that match those determinants that you can actually change those characteristics that are associated with performance or how many of them may be even inherent um, characteristics, things like anthropometry, which is much less easy to change. So, yeah, I mean, I guess you could argue there's perhaps a, a few ways you can look at the determinants of performance, either physical, technical, and arguably maybe even tactical, but tactical perhaps you can put aside for now because that's something that happens maybe on on the day. But like maybe technical and physical are two maybe broad ways you can look at like the, the, the determinants of performance. So what are the what are the technical characteristics we should see when performing a snatch lift uh, and a clean and jerk lift, and then what physical qualities are required in order to to be able to effectively execute those techniques and not just execute the techniques but lift a heavy weight. I mean, most of what I've done so far is to do with the, the physical side of things rather than the technical side of things. Yeah, I, I remember speaking, when you started working at St. Mary's, one of the things that we started talking about and like you really sort of lit up when you started to discuss this was around how in the past you've used certain things like a, a vertical jump or an isometric mid-thigh pull or squatting strength as some form of measures of monitoring to see how someone's progressing and how that potentially could be linked to performance. And I think one of the things that really stood out for me was how you highlighted max strength through maybe like an isometric mid-thigh pull or a squat was one of the biggest determinants. It wasn't really the, I hope I've got this right, it wasn't really the vertical jump. It was, you know, get super strong and it's going to greatly improve your chances of, it seems a bit obvious, but when you think of yeah. weightlifting, you think of moving weight fast. So why is it the big lifts, the big strength that seem to be slightly more of a determining factor? Yeah, so this is kind of based on that. This is the first article that I, that I published, which was probably about, I said it came out about a year ago. And this looked at two of probably the most common, commonly used like physical performance tests, uh, which is like the isometric mid-thigh pull and then the counter movement jump. So in the isometric mid-thigh pull, in this case, we only looked at the isometric peak force and you can look at rate of force development as well but we we hadn't actually looked at that variable um, and then also the counter movement jump peak power velocity force and displacement and essentially we just ran like a multi-linear regression model both longitudinally and cross-sectionally so the idea was first of all which isometric mid-thigh pull and counter movement jump variables predict performance just purely through through uh, looking at the data cross-sectionally and interestingly isometric mid-thigh pull peak force and counter movement jump peak power collectively explained uh, about 90 to 95 percent of the variance in weightlifting performance which is a really yeah it's a, that's a great find you know mm. it's simply saying you need to be strong and powerful for, for weightlifting and although some people might look at that and think yeah 
I mean, you're telling us things that we, we already know. I mean, the, the value of it is running a, like a, a, a regression model like that. So you can actually, to some extent, predict performance as well and, and actually then uh, set set specific objectives. So if your objective is, if you're, you're currently lifting, I don't know, a 200 total and you want a 210 total, you can, to some extent, with some degree of accuracy, say what, what you need in an isometric mid-thigh pull and a counter-movement jump peak power in order to be able to lift. 10 kilograms more. Interestingly, though, when we actually ran the analysis longitudinally, the model retained the isometric mid-thigh pull uh, peak force value, uh, peak force variable, actually eliminated the counter-movement jump peak power variable. So the implications for that indicate that, you know, that counter-movement jump peak power, although is a, an important determinant of performance cross-sectionally, actually doesn't necessarily change over time. Uh, and we're looking at about a two-year period over which we, we looked at these, these variables. So no real change in power output over two years in, in weightlifters and a counter-movement jump, which might seem slightly contrary to some of the justifications for using the Olympic lifts to develop power output in athletes. Uh, but interestingly, what we saw was the variable that actually did associate with change in performance over time was the isometric mid-thigh pull peak force. So really what actually arguably is driving that the changes in performance is changes in maximal strength. Then doesn't mean that we kind of throw the baby out of the bathwater. There may still be some value in, in looking at the, the counter-movement jump a peak power variable, but we might just need to look at it in a slightly different context. And one of the things that I wrote in, in that article was suggesting that it could reasonably just be justified that a counter movement jump peak power test might be better representative of like a, a weightlifting potential, because if it correlates well with performance but doesn't necessarily respond to training over time, then arguably it might be almost like potentially maybe a fingerprint you know, is the athlete potentially have uh, the characteristics to, to succeed in the sport? That was the that was the first study that we'd that we'd looked at, and I think that probably confirmed a lot of people's suspicions. Probably a lot, confirmed a lot of things that people thought were just common sense, and they just intuitively um, from having coached weightlifting. But there's always value in that actually being written down in an academic piece of work, having been peer reviewed, and then and then we can build on on, mm. on that. So yeah, I think that was that was the first interesting, like real, like big finding that came out of of that study. Has your weightlifting programming changed since that research? Since your it's provided a bit more context to that what you believed was everyone kind of knew, but it's given you a really good insight as to like those that jump really well tend to be potentially very good at weightlifting but however if you then turn that person into a weightlifter it wouldn't necessarily expect their vertical jump to also increase yet their weightlifting performance will will, will increase so you're, you're really highlighting like you described different areas where you can focus have you then taken that information and then has that influenced how you now program especially with the lifters you work with today yeah i think so i mean Right, no, it definitely has because I think I think it's probably influenced my my broader philosophy about how I look at how I look at different exercises and classify different exercises and then how I use them maybe over over a periodized periodized cycle. I guess I I, I think I've started to look at the key strength development exercises slightly different to the main competition exercises and then, and the key derivatives of those and obviously they're, they're quite distinctly different anyway. But what the, the reason why I use each of them and, to, and, and in what proportions I use each of them in order to get 
quite specific specific changes. Mm. So, for example, using things like front squat and back squat are absolutely fundamental and key exercises for for Olympic weightlifting. And you can't really can't really succeed in the sport unless you're you're training each of those exercises hard or certainly making progress on each of those. So, rather than expecting the snatch and the clean and jerk to be the, the driving stimulus to improve the force capacity expressed in the snatch and clean and jerk. For me, I now think, right, I, I'm, I'm far more conscious of, of raising people's strength potential using squats and pulls and deadlifts and other key big strength development exercises and setting a target and being confident to, to wait until that target is met before we then move into a sub, like a next phase of training where we start you know, using more of the, 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 the full lift and, and derivatives yeah, so that we're moving out of that strength more of a strength phase into a more of a specific competition prep phase, which doesn't necessarily sound in any way novel or or new. You know, it's 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 a philosophy that's been talked around, or even a training paradigm that's been discussed. Almost block periodization, moving from like a, a block of non-specific but strength capacity building work into something that's a little, little bit more comp specific with a little bit more a bit more velocity specific mm. to the to the event. But having the confidence to invest an extensive block of time to really raising someone's strength potential, because we know that it doesn't matter how technically good you get them at the lifts afterwards, uh, or it doesn't matter how technically good you get them at the lifts, unless they actually have the, the force capacity to even in the first place, they're not going to be able to lift, lift more weight. And I think I kind of almost see this now as this like a, you know, a point of saturation. And this is where we work off like some, some, fairly normative ratios between the lifts. But I know, for example, if I want someone to clean and jerk 100 kilos, then I know that they need to be front squatting between 115 and 120 kilos, which is fairly typical. And the linear regression on, on those is very, very tight as well. So it's, it predicts pretty, pretty well. Mm. I can be confident not to progress onto the next block of training until we've absolutely hit those objectives. And in some instances, the block, the strength block might last four weeks or six weeks. In some instances, it might last 12 or 16 weeks, but the goal hasn't changed. If the goal hasn't changed, why change the program? It doesn't mean we just repeat the same stuff, but we just try different things to try and make sure we actually fill the gap between, you know, where the current athlete is now and what, what level of strength that we're trying to get them to. Once they've hit that, then we can actually move on to the next block of training. So I guess that then ties into not just programming, but longer term planning. It's like, it's made me a little bit more flexible of of how long training blocks need to be. Like we'll stick with them. If, if we've identified an objective and the next block of training is dependent on that objective being met, then we'll stick with that training block until it's complete. And that gives myself and also the, the lifters a bit of confidence that, you know, we know what we're doing. There's a goal. We know what we're working towards. And as soon as we hit that, right, then we move on to the next thing. That's probably the thing that's changed change the most is actually putting a bit more emphasis on, on on those strength exercises and i'm almost starting to think now from from the technical exercises and like the snatch and clean and jerk and i now just probably arguably look at those more as if i don't know if it's the best example but like the like the athletes are, are ballet dancers they're rehearsing and practicing a, a skill and a movement rather than looking at the snatch and clean and jerk as a as a speed strength or a strength speed exercise. I just view it as a technical exercise. All of the physical development is happening, was targeted or intended through like developmental exercises. I wouldn't say that's 
an absolute all-out principle. Like, yes, obviously you're still going to get benefits from, from from training those exercises, but I think I, I view I view them differently and expect different things from them. Like the program doesn't look pretty doesn't look too different, but I expect different things from them. Mm. Like I, I have a much more targeted approach for the for the physical development side, developing strength and power characteristics through through the other developmental exercises, strength and developmental exercises. And I just try and treat those as truly technical and skillful movements that we're just trying to rehearse and practice. Mm. I think that's a really nice and clear philosophy because everyone's everyone knows to be knows you have to be skillful to perform the lifts but we also need to be strong so it's nice to have it put in an order where okay you need to hit these objectives okay we're going to work on physical qualities the physical qualities we are looking at are your ability to uh, generate force very quickly and your maximal ability to do that and we're going to continue with that until we reach a certain point and then hopefully utilize those adaptations from that block into the skill practice where we just increase the volume of it i think that's a really nice and clear direction especially for coaches that are a bit like oh okay we've got an athlete but we want them to be stronger but we also want them to be a little bit more technically efficient in their movements so okay let's do four weeks of strength then we're going to do four weeks of technique and then we're going to go back to strength it it takes away all the rubbish it's like no no focus on these qualities keep going until you get there and then use that physical those physical attributes to enhance your technical ability. I think that's great. And it's one of the most clear philosophies I've heard in weightlifting for a long time. And yeah, definitely. I think that's great. Yes, yeah, because it's also interesting when you listen to people talk about programming weightlifting, you'll see fairly typical programs. And it's not even to say that they're not effective, but and I don't mean necessarily mean this as a criticism on weightlifting coaches, but I don't necessarily think many weightlifting coaches are always easily able to articulate why they're doing what they're doing. Because I mm. think traditionally you'll see like a, a snatch and a snatch or a clean and jerk and then maybe one derivative of the other uh, a pull of whatever of one of the two lifts so like you and then like a squat and then maybe some accessory work and you'll probably get pretty good at weightlifting you follow that fairly simple simple recipe mm. but it's, it's trying to add a little bit more objectivity to what you're doing and why mm. and and then and, and it, I think it certainly has helped clarify my thought process and it makes it certainly makes writing a program easier for me because I haven't got to you know overly self-critique every time I write a program I know exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing because the objectives are very easily definable and it is one of those sports that you'd be surprised at how tight the relationship is between front squat and clean and jerk it's something like there's about three or four articles that are published on it and they're all about 0.95 to 0.98 you know so for me i know correlation doesn't always equal causation but we're talking about the relationship between front squat to clean and jerk like the, mm-hmm. in that case you can be fairly confident to hang your hat on that that correlation yeah. does equal causation so why wouldn't you just hammer the front squats why not yeah. just absolutely push it push it and then this is the thing. It's not necessarily like we're neglecting what we're doing, all that strength development work, that we're neglecting all the technical work. It means that you've got the opportunity to work at 65 to 75% and just do some of the, the higher repetitions that aren't fatiguing and just just rehearse and practice the skill. Or even work on some other other lifts. So, for example, working in a strength block, a couple of the lifters at the moment, and we'll do some of the other variations where 
you could argue that it's, it's quite a nice crossover. So doing things like cleans from blocks, which isn't a particularly skillful movement. They're doing some heavier front squats, but they're actually maybe you know, almost trying to apply it in rather than just going through a, a down and up from a front squat, but not really, only really having to finish the second pull and then drop into the into the catch and stand up. The technical exercises that, that suit the block of the strength training block. So we're not necessarily ignoring that technical development. It just means that it's adjusted so that the main objective is the main objective and that, that is the, the, the loudest signal in the program. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to move on to a bit more of the technical side. I know we've had a discussion before regarding coaches that might go to a seminar with a particular lifter. So trying to think of lifters that have gone around giving seminars, I don't know, like a Tarotti or a Klokov, for example. And then you then see that coach use everything that they've learned in that seminar and sort of carbon copy it into now coaching. But we all know that everyone's different and your ability to coach or see different techniques is going to be different for each person. So following what was worked for Tarotti or what worked for Klokov might not be the best option when it working with someone else that wants to improve in their weightlifting technical ability. And I know the Russians lift a little bit different than the Chinese. Different cultures seem to have sprung different techniques. What's your approach when it comes to developing a particular technique that is, I guess, ideal for an individual? I think it's important, important to start with, there's no two lifters that are going to lift in this, exactly the same way. And that there's always going to be variations between individuals. But there must be some underpinning underlying common principles that everyone must lift towards and partly because they are governed by the fundamental laws of, of motion so first of understanding is going to be variation but that's largely going to be due to differences in skill anthropometry strength levels localized strength levels if someone's got a slightly weaker back or stronger quads or those are all going to manifest in slightly different different techniques. So I think that's probably the, the, the best start point. Absolutely, like I said, some absolutely non-negotiable principles that must happen in the lift. And I'd say across all of those examples that you've already given, so like Chinese, Russian, American, British, like there are some differences in technique. I'm not, I'm not convinced that they're as big as people sometimes make them out to be. I think mm. maybe if you could argue that the Chinese certainly have a more of a distinctive not distinctively different. They definitely have some characteristics which are quite seem to be quite uniquely Chinese, but I think a lot of that might also be due to the fact that they are incredibly mobile, very strong people. So I think there may be there may be that may be one of the things. But I also think there's there's far more commonalities between the techniques than there are differences. And if you actually look through many of like these many of these techniques and look for some of what we've identified as kind of key positions and this is a conversation I used to have quite frequently with the previous uh, head coach of the GB team, Giles, when, when I was working with them. And, you know, there, there are differences between technique, but there are these key positions that consistently occur. So, for example, at the, in the, at the end of the first pull, when the bar's just like kind of crossing the knee, most individuals will have like a vertical shin when you look at it from a side view. Now, the way in which some of those individuals achieve that vertical shin will be slightly different. Some will push the knees out to the side a little bit more. Some will push their knees back. But these different strategies still manifest in this common principle that occurs across the board. So it, it, looking at it through that lens kind of enables you to factor in there is going to be individual variation. 
but those individual variations are all enabling that one common principle to occur and that the idea in this in that particular example would be to ensure that when the bar is passing the knee that it's directly over the center of the foot so there are a different way number of ways that you could try to ensure that the, that the bar is over the center of the foot but the you know the common factor is the bar is over the center of the foot and the variation is that is that people some people push their knees out some people push their knees back and that will all be according to maybe differences in anatometry, strength levels uh, and things like that so that's probably the for me, the, the important place to start from is not expecting everyone to look exactly the same. And then after that, you just also have to be, for me, I just think we have to be like flexible. Personally, I don't, I don't take a particularly like, authoritative approach to, to coaching. And if someone says to me, no, this my grip, like if I ask someone to move their grip wider and they say, no, actually it feels better, narrower. For the time being, I don't mind just saying, fine, just, just crack on. If I genuinely think it's a problem, it's just something that, you know, it's, a, it's an evolving process and I look at kind of technical coaching more as a, like a, a process of, of smoothing rather than chiseling, let's say. You know, it's not, you're not trying to make drastic changes. It's something that just subtly changes over time with the odd cue here and there and the odd a bit of feedback or even corrective drills. But I think that's one of the things that I've, I've as I've gained a bit more confidence in coaching, I've, I've been happy to look at a, a technique that's, maybe a bit ropey especially for, for beginners that they're learning something by exploring their movement and making errors and dropping the bar in front and behind and may, they may actually not need my input i might need to, if there's a common error happening over and over and over again yeah fair enough i might input and say and make this change or give them a cue or something to think about but i think there's there's a, there's a lot to be said for just allowing those individuals that the space just to explore explore their own technique because i think that's where probably most of the learning is actually taking place and there's also just being in a, in a gym full of other weightlifters watching technique there's a lot of information that they're gathering just by just by doing uh, and just by being present there have been instances where i've just chosen to take a bit more of a back seat from trying to make technical change over and over and over again in the same session there may be some some instances or some blocks of training where i've probably even made i'd obviously not like absolutely no no technical changes to or no technical feedback to some of the weightlifters just because they don't need it there may be something that warrants a change but it's something to address in the next block or the next block so yeah i also think it depends on the level that you're starting at like right at the beginning typically offer a lot more a lot more input a lot more feedback but within within a matter of months not even highly skilled weightlifters within a matter of months once people have the, the bare bones of a technique the thing that's going to make them better is just it's just them practicing in in their own head purposeful practice it doesn't always need to be coach-led like mm. i far prefer to try and make it like athlete-led i'm there i'm what i'm watching i'm watching all the reps that are being done and that builds a bit more of a for me a bit of knowledge of that about that athlete but it doesn't mean i have to act on it like instantaneously i can you know watch over time and pick pick my moments when to actually try and have have an impact coaching is often about knowing what not to say or when not to say anything is it you don't want people thinking coaching is all about oh, i know what to say i've just seen something that's wrong i need to highlight it and say the right thing to encourage the athlete to improve in some way a lot of the time, coaching is all about knowing when to take a step back and not actually say anything. Uh, and I'm glad that you started describing your coaching process in a way, because obviously you've watched me lift. And that's 
like an element of your coaching, which I particularly like, you're almost creating the environment through your dialogue or maybe even exercise selection to allow me to figure out how to lift for myself. What's the best way of lifting for me? And the only reason I wanted to highlight that particular way of coaching is because when you talk about the sort of non-negotiable positions, I've, I've seen some coaches that rely on certain cues a lot. I don't know, like, you've got to make contact with the bar during second pull. Contact with the bar is key, for, as like an example. So it almost becomes like the cue itself is the non-negotiable rather than, right, well, we, we know we need to hit a certain position. How you get there is up to you, which your approach kind of allows, which I, which I really like. Yeah, the flexibility has to be on, on you. Like some people might think I'm contradicting myself if they watch me coach because I could be standing with two, two lifters and I'll be telling one to jump and one to stop jumping hmm. uh, just because those cues are relevant to whatever error that I think that each of them are, are showing. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's me, the one that has, it's for us as coaches, the ones that need to be flexible. And equally, I've said some things that have absolutely not worked and actually had the opposite effect um, and forced the athlete to be too maybe internally focused rather than externally focused and actually thrown their, thrown their lifts off completely. So yeah, I mean, certainly not, wouldn't say that I've perfected it, but the more time I've practiced trying to make those changes, one, getting a bit more confidence to what I should say and when to say it, but then equally when to not say anything. And I think there's a lot to be said for not saying anything because Really, by the time they're a few, maybe a year or a couple of years into their training, you know, weightless is a pretty, pretty autonomous, to be honest. They're like, it's one of the benefits of actually working with these, these types of athletes is that a few years in, they're very, very self-reliant as, as far as athletes go, certainly in my experience. And it actually makes the process that bit easier because you can, it frees you up to think about the next, the next few things rather than having to write, you know, a core exercise program. You don't, by the time you get to a point, you don't need to do that anymore because they're quite self-reliant. And I think that goes, that's across the board. So, yeah. No, definitely. That's wicked. To finish off, can you tell us a little bit more about how people can get involved with weightlifting? I want to know a little bit more about Woking Weightlifting Club. Like that's the club that you run. How can people get involved? Yeah, well, I mean, generally, if wherever you're based, if you want to, if you want to get involved in weightlifting in general, obviously, weightlifting is the place to go and have a look. And there's like a club finder on there. Obviously, I run Woking Weightlifting Club, which is in Woking. It's about 40 minutes outside of or west of west of Twickenham, which is where I work. Yeah, I mean. It's it's fairly fairly straightforward to be honest. We don't necessarily we don't have a website because we don't have necessarily have the personnel to manage all that kind of stuff. But we we keep a fairly active Instagram profile. So if anyone's quite interested in in getting involved, they can get in contact through there, and you mm-hmm. get get an idea of, of looking through there about the types of athletes that we have there. We're fortunately in a position now where after the three three years or so, I've been I've been uh, running that club. We've got some people pushing towards you know international squads we've got two two athletes one who's on like the senior england squad another who's on a youth england squad and then a couple others who are very very close arguably had they'd uh, thrown their hat in the ring a little bit earlier probably would have found themselves in, in a similar space so we've got a very very good caliber of you know national emerging on international level weightlifters and then we also have kind of more of that i wouldn't well, i don't like to use the term recreational but like beginners, introductory level participants who who were just keen to get involved in the sport and and learn uh, and learn the Olympic lifts and with the hope of, of of going to competition as well. Yeah, I mean the club's in a pretty good space. We have uh, about 
six, seven platforms in a, a little basement at the bottom of Woking Leisure Centre. So yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great little setup, and mm. we've got a great bunch of bunch of lifters down there. And uh, yeah, it's it's going from strength to strength, and the club's really starting to to gain a bit of momentum now. It's taking a bit of time. Yeah, it's it's a fun project. Let's call it. No, definitely. What's the Instagram handle for Woking? I think it's Woking underscore weightlifting underscore club. So it's fairly easy to find. Yeah, cool. Yeah, definitely. Everyone check that out uh, and definitely head down there. Like I've, I've trained down at Woking a few times, had my first competition down at Woking. So it's a really good environment. And obviously, Sean's there to provide any amazing coaching and that you've got a few coaches underneath you as well, haven't you? So there's a, there's a really good culture developing there. So definitely get involved. I always ask this as a final question for all of our guests. If you had to choose a guest for uh, the progress theory, who would you choose? And usually I'd go, you could pick anyone. But for you, I'd, I'd like to know, out of like the weightlifting community, who would you like to have on a podcast? Is this alive or dead? <laughs> oh, I don't, either. I would have said a bad, I would have said a badger when if he was still alive, just to have known, you know, Give a little bit of an overview of Abadjev, the Bulgarian coach, just for those that don't know who he is. Yeah, so I mean, he was probably, he was. I mean, like, you need to caveat with this firstly by saying he was <laughs> he was banned from the sport for for his uh, promotion of his athlete doping, which is obviously something we don't don't agree with. But I think given that the era that he was involved with, where everyone was everyone was doping, it was around the 1980s when Bulgaria were absolutely dominating the sport, and obviously Bulgaria would have been a country that was within the Soviet Union at the time and for whatever reason not that I you know, pretend to understand the sporting system entirely of, of the Soviet Union but he managed to break away slightly in terms of the, the information that he was given about how he should be coaching the Bulgarian weightlifters and, tr- and decided to go with a completely different philosophy and idea about how he would have trained uh, the Bulgarian team and his training was very pretty brutal and arguably there's a reason why I don't necessarily try to replicate it because I don't necessarily think it's a suitable way to train. But the the, the the purpose and intent to try and try something different, go with your own philosophy, which ultimately was max out every single day on snatch, clean and jerk and squats. Ultimately, what it led to was probably about 10 years, maybe maybe longer of dominance by, by Bulgaria in the sport. So that would have been... That would have been a nice one. I think he'd done some podcasts in the past, but yeah, I think he died not too long ago. Uh, so, he, yeah, yeah I, don't know, I don't know if that's the kind of answer you're after for. <laughs> no, definitely. I even forgot about Avadive. Like, he would be a great, he would be a great podcast. So, one, to explain the rationale behind why he trained the athletes the way he did, even though we could probably kind of guess. But at the same time, there's a number of stories which I don't know are necessarily true, but you kind of want to ask to see if they they are true. So for example, I heard a rumor that because they were lifting to max every day, the coach wanted to make sure that outside of lifting, they were resting as much as possible. So they made them get move around in golf buggies. So, so they weren't walking around, they were <laughs> resting. Right. I want to know if it's actually true. I want to spread it like it is true because it's interesting. So there is a documentary on YouTube, yeah. I think it's called The School of Champions or... Yeah, <laughs> you'll be able to find it very easily. But it, that gives a bit of a, a glimpse into the insight, you know, into you know into how, how they were training that, uh, that, that cohort of athletes. And yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting. Well, I'll, I'll find that and put it in the show notes for people to go and have a look. Yeah. Sean, mate 
that was brilliant. Thank you so much. We could probably keep going. I'd love to get another podcast maybe in the future, maybe even comparing the Bulgarian sort of programming style versus, say, like a Russian programming style. I think there's a lot more we could delve into, but we'll definitely wait for next time, yeah? Sounds great, mate. Thanks for having me on. No, cheers, mate. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sean, for coming onto the Progress Theory and talking about his research and his ideas on weightlifting performance. What a great episode. It really showed how coaches can use research to guide programming decisions. Sean does this so well that his overall philosophy is one of the clearest of any weightlifting coach I've ever heard. Like always, I just wanted to provide some final thoughts on key areas that really stood out for me from the episode. Firstly, I enjoyed hearing how Sean uses clear objectives to influence when he is developing certain qualities in his weightlifting programming. For example, he talks about how max strength is a key determining factor for weightlifting performance, so he wants his lifters to hit certain strength targets before progressing onto focusing programming on other qualities. Now this makes complete sense. Why move onto a new training block with a new focus if you haven't reached certain targets? And secondly, I love how he tailors his coaching deliberately to allow the athlete to find the appropriate weightlifting technique for themselves. Yes, there are key positions you want to hit, but how every lifter will achieve them will be different due to the varying anthropometric and physical qualities. Forcing a certain technical weightlifting style onto someone could hinder their progression. Guide the athlete. Don't tell them what to do all the time. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this episode and it gave you plenty of information and ideas on how to improve your weightlifting programming and performance. It would be awesome if you could leave us a review and share this episode on your Insta story to help the show grow. We will see you in the next one.